Welcome back to CSUS Politics. In this episode, we'll start by covering some current events, then take a look at the interaction between the government and the private sector on arms sales and weapons development, including an exclusive interview with Joe Rice, the Director of Government Relations at Lockheed Martin Space. Today, you'll be hearing from Marissa, Kenneth, Saya, Wesley, Ashton, and Kevin. Starting off with current events, on Friday, October 5th, after three days of high-quality treatment at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, President Trump was discharged and tweeted, don't be afraid of COVID, don't let it dominate your life. Treatment in the nation's best hospital would normally cost over $100,000 in the American health system for anyone who isn't president covered by tax dollars. While he was met by applause from supporters, he was immediately seen taking off his mask, saluting Marine One in the cameras and causing media backlash. That previous week, President Trump mocked former Vice President and Democratic nominee Joe Biden for wearing a mask during the first presidential debate, while the first family also refused to wear masks to the event. Now the second presidential debate scheduled for October 15th has been canceled because of President Trump's refusal to participate in a, quote, waste of time virtual debate. His quick departure from the White House and the fact that he was put on an experimental drug regimen caused uncertainty over the escalating pandemic that the president continues to downplay. On Thursday, October 8th, Trump announced that he was no longer contagious without offering medical evidence. The CDC recommends patients wait 10 days after symptoms before assuming they are not contagious, or they should obtain two negative DNA-detecting PCR tests 24 hours apart. As of right now, the U.S. has around 7.79 million coronavirus cases. On Wednesday, October 7th, California Senator Kamala Harris and current Vice President Mike Pence held the first vice presidential debate from behind plexiglass screens. One of the main talking points was the government response to COVID-19, which Kamala Harris called, quote, the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country, unquote. She supported her argument by citing the high death toll, slow presidential response to information presented in January, and lack of a cohesive plan. Pence defended the response by pointing to the suspension of travel from China, the prevalence of tests, and the plans for a vaccine as policy successes, and criticized the Obama administration's reaction to the swine flu. Fossil fuels were another point of dissent in the debate. When Kamala Harris promised to improve infrastructure, including, quote, upgrading our roads and bridges, but also investing in clean energy and renewable energy, unquote, Pence responded that the Biden administration, quote, wants to abolish fossil fuels and ban fracking, which would cost hundreds of thousands of American jobs all across the heartland, unquote. He also argued that a strong free market would help better promote the environment. Pence's words were somewhat of an exaggeration. While Biden does advocate for clean energy measures, such as the Green New Deal, he does not propose to ban fracking, only to end new leases on federal lands. The Supreme Court was another contentious subject during the debate. The topic was first brought up in connection to the subject of abortion rights and Roe v. Wade. Mike Pence, responding to criticism from Kamala Harris over the Supreme Court's plan to abolish the ACA, accused her and Joe Biden of, quote, openly advocating adding seats to the Supreme Court, unquote, and refusing to give a straight answer when asked. Kamala Harris responded by accusing Pence and Trump of, appointing, quote, purely ideological people who have been reviewed by legal professional organizations and found to not be competent are substandard, unquote. Ultimately, most voters, despite being more positive about the general quality of discourse, did not change their opinions following the debate, with many citing the evasiveness of both candidates. Studies by 538 support this, showing virtually no change in either voting plans 
or the popularity of each participant. In fact, the most popular internet talking point following the debate was the fly that landed on Mike Pence's head. As Halloween approaches, many people are left with questions on whether it is safe to participate in festivities. The CDC guidelines for trick-or-treating and other Halloween activities were released on September 22nd and last updated on October 9th to include easy-to-read, kid-friendly bullet points and illustrations to accompany the guidelines and give people concrete answers on what is safe. A few reminders in the report included reminders such as a costume mask is not a substitute for a cloth mask and to avoid direct contact with trick-or-treaters by setting up a station with individualized bag treats for kids to take. They also provided alternatives to traditional trick-or-treating with activities such as hiding Halloween treats around the house. For state and local governments, they are met with the unique challenge of balancing health and safety while still preserving the integrity of the holiday. The state of California is working to draft statewide guidelines before the fast-approaching October 31st date, and already L.A. County officials have made headlines for first releasing guidelines which strictly prohibited trick-or-treating on September 8th, and then quickly updating their guidelines a day later on September 9th to a gentler placing of trick-or-treating in the not-recommended category, effectively lifting the ban. The National Confectioners Association replied to L.A. County relaxing their ban by saying, quote, There will be regional differences across the country in the way people choose to celebrate the Halloween season throughout the month of October. Whether it means trick-or-treating or more county-bill moments at home with family and close friends or just more time celebrating the season throughout the month of October. One thing is for sure, Halloween is happening. <laughs> As the proxy war in Yemen rages on for its sixth year, the U.S. federal government is facing increasing scrutiny over its arms sales to Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and groups that critics say are committing war crimes with U.S. arms. In a prolonged air campaign, Saudi Arabia has killed thousands of civilians with U.S.-made airplanes and weaponry, but proponents say continued material support to Saudi Arabia is critical for geopolitical stability and counterterrorism. Lockheed Martin is one of the principal arms suppliers to U.S. allies in the Middle East, distributing advanced technologies including the F-35 fighter jet, all with approval and support of President Donald Trump, who has formed a close relationship with the company. In 2016, as both houses of Congress voted to block an $8.1 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia over human rights concerns, President Trump vetoed the resolution and declared an emergency in order to expedite sales. In August, an investigative report from the Inspector General stated that the Department of Defense did not fully assess risks and implement mitigation measures to reduce civilian casualties and legal concerns associated with the transfer. Former Department of Defense lawyer and current Yale Law School professor Una Hathaway wrote that U.S. officials might be said to be guilty of aiding and abetting war crimes as a matter of international law, violating multiple sections of the Geneva Convention. Meanwhile, top defense contractors including Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and General Dynamics are spending millions of dollars lobbying the U.S. government while procuring trillions in combined arms deals. Lobbying, which is constitutionally protected in the United States under the First Amendment, is used by companies often to ensure deals and regulations favorable to businesses are passed by politicians. Furthermore, in the controversial Citizens United Supreme Court case, it was ruled that corporations were protected under the First Amendment in terms of campaign finance and could not be capped with funding to political campaigns and groups. Critics have bashed the rulings allowing money to influence politicians and decrease political integrity, with former President Jimmy Carter calling U.S. campaign finance legalized bribery. 
These monetary relationships between government and defense contractors have been heavily criticized, as correlations have been seen with perceived pro-military voting by senators and receiving larger campaign donations from defense companies. We sat down for a rare interview with Lockheed Martin to discuss Lockheed's political and social impact, its relationship with the U.S. federal government, and the ethical questions behind arms dealing. Lockheed Martin is an aerospace, weaponry, and advanced technology company. In addition to those, the company also invests in healthcare systems, renewable energy systems, intelligent energy distribution, and compact nuclear fusion. Lockheed Martin is the largest defense contractor in the world and a top United States government supplier. Half of the company's annual sales are to the U.S. Department of Defense. In 2019, they reported sales of $59.8 billion and their cash flow operations were $7.3 billion. Lockheed Martin states their core values as to do what's right, respect others, and perform with excellence, and to refuse to allow their integrity to be compromised by a desire to succeed, regardless of the business circumstances. Joe Rice is the current director of government relations for Lockheed Martin Space. Before coming to Lockheed, Rice was the mayor of Glendale, Colorado, and served a term in the Colorado State House of Representatives. Additionally, he has served over 30 years in various parts of the U.S. Army, including as a colonel and as a member of the reserves. While touching on many aspects of Lockheed as a whole, for this podcast, we're focusing on interactions between the government and the private sector with regards to arms sales and weapons development. This interview has been condensed for brevity and to allow for additional commentary. To start, um, just getting to know you, what is your role at Lockheed Martin and how did you get into this industry? Uh, My role at Lockheed Martin is I help coordinate state and local government relations uh, for Lockheed Martin Space. So Lockheed Martin is a corporation that has four entities. Space is one of those. And so in the states in which space has a large presence, uh, California, Colorado, Florida are are three of the biggest, uh, we work with state and local officials as well as chambers and community organizations to to really make sure that they understand what we do and why it's important and also be liaison for things like uh, the community relations team and STEM events and and help with community community engagement. That's really cool. The second part of that was how did I get involved in this? Yeah, how did you get into this industry? Uh, so I've been with Lockheed nine years now, and uh, it, it, that followed on uh, a career that kind of had three parts and so often overlapped. Um, like for instance, a good part of my career was in the Army Reserve at, or the Army National Guard. And of course, sometimes mm-hmm. that's a part-time job. So you also have a regular job and such. And, and of course, I also did some uh, deployments overseas as, as well. But the three parts of my career are, were uh, Army, uh, as well as uh, I had a business career. I, I worked uh, for banks and for telecommunications companies, uh, mostly doing uh, customer service management, managing customer service teams. Uh, and then the, uh, the third part of my career, again, sometimes overlapping, was I uh, got involved in, in the communities in which I lived. And uh, so I, I ended up on a uh, city council of a small town in the, in the metro Denver area ultimately became mayor, uh, then took some time off uh, from politics, uh, but a few years later ran for the Colorado legislature and served a couple of terms in the Colorado legislature. And so when I applied for this job at Lockheed Martin, uh, they liked the fact that I understood the military because some of what we do uh, deals with the military. They liked that I understood business and they liked that I understood state and local government and and community engagement. So that's what led to this position. That's really cool. So um, relating to your mayor, you said you were a mayor before. 
Has that yeah. had a really large influence on anything you do at Lockheed, your decisions you make? You know, I, yeah, I would say it certainly did. And I, I think, uh, frankly, all three of those things and in, in, in various combinations uh, led to, uh, uh, led to uh, yeah, I use a lot of those lessons all the time. And particularly as mayor, you know, really understand uh, a lot of what happens in, in a community and how uh, education affects uh, the overall business policy and how uh, business affects, you know, residential policy and how social issues and programs can affect your employees. And so it really was, I think, a good holistic lesson for, you know, what what makes a good ecosystem and a healthy community. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, when working with the U.S. Department of Defense or maybe other U.S. federal government agencies, um, what are your company's main political objectives in the decision-making process? You know, we put the government comes to us with problems or solutions, and and we put we you know noodle on it and come up with the best uh, as well as of course they put it out to bid competitively to other companies, uh, and we come up with the best solutions uh, that we can. So. Um, our objectives are to meet the needs of our customers, whether they're government or commercial. Um, but it, it, that's what our what our objectives are. And 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 of course, uh, whenever there are, are are issues that 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 affect the overall work environment, I mean, we we're affected by the things that affect any other business. Um, and so we certainly will respond and let people know uh, how those kinds of things uh, would affect us. And. And usually, uh, I would say that there's uh, when well, I'll just take an incident in California a few years ago, the uh, the legislature there was a proposal in the assembly uh, to um, to to kind of reclassify how employees qualify for overtime. Uh, frankly, we were already meeting uh, almost all of those what they wanted to get to, uh, but they wanted to make it a statewide standard, and uh, which is 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 fine. Uh, but like some of the reporting and calculations, they had it would have cost us a lot of money to to do it, right? Because they wanted us to do it in certain ways, and we were able to work with the elected officials there and say, we understand your goal, uh, we agree with your goal, and in, in this case, and if we can put in place these kinds of reporting mechanisms and such, we can do what you want, what you're trying to accomplish in a way that's less expensive for us. And of course, when it's less expensive for us, that enables us to employ more people, put more money into R&D, research and development, those sorts of things. So that's a lot of, 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 of how we, we engage uh, on policy. Awesome. And so you kind of just touched on this, but um, Lockheed is one of the largest lobbying spenders in the United States. And so we're interested in like how and why does Lockheed utilize lobbying to achieve its political and also social goals and what levels of government are like really the primary focus for Lockheed? Uh, so, so I don't forget it in the question. It's it's all levels of government, right? Uh, state, local, and and federal. Clearly, uh, a lot of our business is directly with the U.S. government, and even that, even the part that's commercial and international, is still regulated by by the U.S. government. So, why do we engage? Um, uh, the reason everybody does, right? Our system of government is dependent on elected officials getting information and uh, getting other points of view and taking that all into consideration and then making decisions. And so all of us uh, as citizens have a First Amendment right to lobby. It's in, our, it's in uh, uh, the First Amendment to the Constitution, the right of the people to redress their government for their grievances. Uh, that is, and if you read the Federalist Papers and other things, that is, um, the, the, the founders were like, let's have discussion on things. And when everybody can represent their view, we may not all, we may not all agree, but when we can represent our views, then their belief was, and I think they're largely correct, that the, the best possible uh, answer will come out of it. 
because um, they have to reconcile all different competing things and such. So really, uh, this is one reason why I'm well, one reason why I'm very happy and proud to work for Lockheed Martin. I believe in what we do, right? I believe what we do is important. It certainly is cool. Um, and so what we do with elected officials uh, is we educate them about what we do and why it's important. And what we find is when most people know what we do and why it's important, they tend to support it. Maybe not exactly the way we would want. They have to take into consideration other points of view and other, other, other priorities. But really that is, I think, what is at the root of all lobbying. And I know that you know, some people, politics can get them turned off and it's negative and it's ugly. You know, and I, I'm not saying that what's going on now is, is, is great or anything, but I also would go back and say, look at any point in our history, there have always been challenges. We are fallible creatures. We have fallible systems, but this is the best system that I think history will tell you that we've set up where people fight, have conversations, disagree, but ultimately, you know, uh, it, 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 uh, it, it works at least like Winston Churchill, you know, just, just well enough, right? It works just well enough. And one of his famous quotes is democracy is the worst form of government. You guys heard this? I'm sure you have. What's the, what's the end of it? Except for all the others. Yes, there you go. That's right. Did I cover awesome that enough? Thing. Did you want it, Kevin? Do you want it? Did I, did I answer all parts no. of the question? No, uh, yeah, that's, that's great. Thank you. Cool. So um, touching on like your revenue and your operation as a business. So Lockheed is, uh, obtains a major source of revenue from manufacturing and distributing arms. So we're interested in you know, how Lockheed kind of has an inherent interest in, in conflict and in, in wars potentially. So how does Lockheed ensure that they use uh, like their immense power and influence uh, ethically and responsibly? Well, I, I tell you what, I think if you look at what, what our priorities are and our values, I mean, we really, uh, that there's a lot to do in a lot of our business that, you know, ex exploring uh, uh, weather satellites, there's so many things that don't deal with defense. So, you know, frankly, I think, again, you can look back at budgets, right? Uh, you know, some people think that the defense budget high, have, high is always good. Well, sometimes that comes out at the expense of NASA's exploration budget or weather satellites or other things. Um, so uh, I think that some level of national security and defense is good, but there are plenty of ambitious things that the United States and the people of the United States can spend money on um, if, if we don't have to, if we're not involved in conflict. So that, you know, Peace and prosperity, uh, I, I think you, you can see that our sales go up, even international sales go up when the economy's good and there's peace and prosperity. When you have conflict, not only is there tragedy inherent in conflict, but um, uh, the, uh, the, the overall effects on the economy are, are, are not that great. And again, you know, that's when we've seen cutbacks in exploration programs. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the good news is that, you know, Lockheed Martin doesn't have to make these decisions. Um, the American people make election decisions, the elected officials make decisions, and, uh, and we give them the information, the best information we can, as do others, and then they decide what they're going to do, and uh, they do it. And, uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm, uh, that, that's how the process works, and again, it, it works fairly well. Thank you. And uh, building off of what Kevin said, how does Lockheed Martin take into account human rights and the possible improper usage of its technology and weapons when selling to interested parties? For example, uh, well, yeah, sorry, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Please For example, uh, how would an interested nation state go from wanting, say, a missile to then receiving it? Does Lockheed Martin need government approval? Uh, matter of fact, we need more than government approval. It is completely the government's decision. Any 
um, high tech item, including and any national defense item. Uh, it's we don't Lockheed Martin doesn't go around the globe and meet with countries and say, hey, you should buy this, you should buy this, you should buy this. The, there is a process by which the that those governments have to approach the U.S. government and then go through the the process to request uh, whatever it is, and it's, whether it's a defense system or even like uh, a communication satellite, because again high technology, you don't want getting in the wrong hands because even though you can use it for this purpose, somebody else might use it for that purpose, uh, which is not good. So those decisions are, are made by uh, made by the US government. Got it, okay. And then again, following up on that, in the chance that a piece of Lockheed technology results in civilian death or unnecessary harm, what steps does Lockheed take to ensure it doesn't happen again? Does Lockheed Martin take any part in the recovery efforts or compensation to affected individuals, or does responsibility fall on the buyers? That's up again up to the U.S. government. Um, so certainly, you know, we we want uh, we want our, our our things to be used for good and such, uh, and and that is um, I think that is that's up to the U.S. government. So well, I guess you know, the part of your question, right? If there's a uh, I can't think of a case, and if you can, if you have one, let me know. But I can't think of a case where there was a like a, a design flaw or something that we should have known about that, that caused somebody to get hurt, um, then I, I believe, I think the history of our company will, will demonstrate that we, we do the right things, right? We, we live very strongly by the values and, that, and the Lockheed Martin employees are part of Lockheed Martin because they believe in what they're doing. Uh, and and uh, I think everybody company says that, but I think if you look at like our retention rates and such with employees, it's much, much, much longer than most other companies. And I think it's a reflection of our values and how we treat people and what we do. Um, so again, all those decisions are, are up to the US government. Again, and, and for instance, on the, the part, because it is only a part of our, of our uh, the apparatus we build that are military and defense, it's the, it's the US government that oversees that. And we fully respect uh, when there are your human rights embargoes or any other type of thing, uh, we live by those laws. And I guess I should say also that around the world, uh, our ethics training and what we do is we live by the higher standard, right? So um, sometimes there's many things we're allowed to do uh, that, that we won't do. Uh, and uh, so it, we live by the highest standard to try to, uh, to absolutely to, to, to do what's right, respect others and perform with excellence. That's, that's our values. And it's something that uh, I think is taken very personally by, by, uh, by every employee. Awesome. And one final question, uh, just going back to some like the ethical issues. So I understand. So you've said Lockheed has a very strong set of core values, but Lockheed sometimes supplies to countries that could be criticized for not necessarily upholding like the same democratic and egalitarian values, such as Saudi Arabia. Um, like, for example, last year, a Lockheed bomb was used by the Saudi coalition that ended up killing uh, a few dozen children. So I know the U.S. and Lockheed both uh, don't really play a part in targeting decisions, and you say this, but does Lockheed ever, uh, you know, potentially change their business plans or um, maybe consider stops applying to countries such as this when events like this occur? You know, I, again, those are decisions of the U.S. government. I don't think you want a private company uh, deciding who to give armaments to and who not to. I mean, that that is that's not what that's not what you want. Um, and I think like many things that I, I think you would agree that uh, situations are always complicated because you can say, okay, well, let's, let's as a nation not supply armaments to a particular country. Well, there are consequences to that also. And in some cases, in many cases, right, people die that way. So 
I, I think that we that the best I can come up with is you know we operate ethically and we certainly operate the way that the, the, you don't want us making those decisions. Um, uh, not that I think we're incapable of it, but that's not the role of the private sector. That is that you there are some by the way countries around the world where that is how it works. Uh, uh, there are several countries that the military owns some aspects of the business and they make decisions that might. You know, just what that may not be in that uh, in in the overall interest. So, I think we should be very proud of the checks and balances. Will our system of government be perfect? No, um, but I do think again, history shows you that it, it's the best that that that, uh, that 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 we can we can we can do. And I and I think um, I, I quote Martin Luther King quite a bit um, because sometimes people ask. You know, I, I love history and I used to teach history and such and. And sometimes people say, well, you know, the United States had slavery and women couldn't vote and all these, and you know, genocide and all those sorts of things. And I'm like, you know what? Um, I agree. And I'm, I'm not condoning any of those things, but I think you go, I, I parallel Martin or say, you know, Martin Luther King when he said the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think that's the beauty of our system is we've had challenges, we've had shortcomings, and we still probably, we still do. <laughs> but our system of government allows us to continually to get better, to continually uh, improve and it's not always a straight line, right? Um, sometimes there's up and back, uh, but the arc of the universe is long. It bends towards justice, and um, and I think we play Lockheed Martin plays a constructive role in our society, and we play an appropriate role in our society. And it's not our role to decide who who uh, armaments are sold to and who they aren't. Okay, so just to make sure we understand this, so um, you know, so what you're saying is Lockheed, uh, at least for the military sector the majority of business decisions are kind of made by the U.S. government and Lockheed tries to manufacture and distribute as ethically or manufacture as ethically as possible. Um, I think the answer is yes, but say that again. Oh. So, yeah, I'm trying to just like, so for uh, defense companies or contractors like, like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin mm -hmm. and Northrop, so the U.S. government uh, kind of decides the business aspect of things and to which countries um, your arms go to, and you just try to manufacture them as ethically yes. as possible. Yep, okay. that, that, that's correct. The uh, the uh, for a government to buy an armament or a high tech item, they have to go through the U.S. State Department and then and or the Department of Defense, and I think it still has to go through both if it's an armament. Uh, and then then they can get kind of then the you see it every you, every now and then you'll see a headline of where U.S. government I think. Forget I, I, if I say the wrong country, but uh, recently, you know, U.S. government approves F-35 arms sales to South Korea. Um, that is because that's the government's decision. Uh, so it's we can't just go sell that to anybody, and uh, it's it's up to the U.S. government. There's a there's a process to do that. And then, kind of final last thing: Is there any wisdom you would like to impart on us as six high schoolers? <laughs> Um, one, I, I, I'm uh, lean. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, lean forward. Come up with hard questions. Ask them. Think about them. You know, the number one piece of advice I try to give to people is uh, thoughtfully consider all different sides of an issue, uh, because uh, without sparing you the long history lesson, uh, the the media environment now is is, and it's always fun again to blame the media. But again, the media gives us what we ask for. And right now, we all tend to live in bubbles, whether you mean to or not. You click like on something, you get more of that. And so really thoughtfully consider other perspectives uh, and, and seek out information, not to make fun of them or tear them apart, but to really how, why do they think what they think, right? 
And then you can, that, that often makes it more complicated and stressful, but I think that's where the best possible decisions come, come from. So keep doing that and keep learning, leaning forward, get involved. Like it's kind of one of the other things I say is when people get frustrated at government, that's lean forward. The answer is to lean forward and, and get more involved, not to check out because if you check out, other people make the decisions for you. Thank you so much. At the end of the day, there is at least some inherent responsibility that defense contractors hold. The U.S. cannot order weapons that companies do not choose to develop and manufacture. While Lockheed's exact liability is unclear, it should be noted that the International Criminal Court has recently permitted its chief prosecutor to investigate American actions in Afghanistan, the first time ever a case has been made against the United States, so there is now some historical precedent of American officials potentially being held liable by international courts. Also heavily implied during the interview were the geopolitical benefits of supplying arms to American allies. America has been criticized for unnecessary interventionism, especially with regards to its interest in Middle Eastern oil. Relevantly, Lockheed Martin and similar companies have invested and developed fracking technologies and worked to support fracking companies, which has greatly reduced American dependence on Middle Eastern oil. On the topic of lobbying, Mr. Rice mentions a case in which employee classification and overtime pay was resolved through lobbying efforts. In 2019, Lockheed Martin paid $327,000 in back wages after being found by the Department of Labor to have misclassified certain employees as ineligible for overtime and paying them below the wages specified in their Service Contract Act. With public support for arms sales to Saudi Arabia low, the question remains if Lockheed or the U.S. government's actions are permissible under international law, as well as to what point should private entities make decisions to stop supply or manufacturing, even if it hurts their bottom line. We'd also like to thank Lockheed Martin and Joe Rice for their time. From Crystal Springs Upland School, this has been CSUS Politics. See you next week.